the only valid, ethically correct basis for acquiring money is close proximity to a silicon fabrication plant in Guangzhou. <laughs> that is the only pure way of creating a security infrastructure for a blockchain. Hey folks, as of June, Zimbabwe is back in hyperinflation again. And it's worth talking about because there's a lesson to be learned that you might have missed, which we'll spend most of the show discussing. But first, we're talking Ethereum supply, how to calculate it, why it's different from Bitcoin, both in technical and philosophical terms, and why that's okay, even if you're a hardcore fan of Bitcoin. Well, for most of you. <laughs> My name is Adam B. Levine, and I'm joined, as always, by the other hosts of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts for joining us today and for you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. So to jump right in, over the last few weeks, there's been a growing, I'm going to call it a kerfluffle, <laughs> in the world of crypto pundits over how to calculate the supply of Ether on the Ethereum blockchain, what exactly it is, and whether that matters. Before I throw it to anyone else, I want to set the stage a little bit here. Bitcoin is this thing that's money, right? A blockchain, just like drawing it back to even more basics than that, like a blockchain is a way to track ownership of stuff on the internet in a way where you don't have to rely on any one person or group or company. It's a consensus reality, and it's a distributed ledger that allows you to track ownership. So when we talk about Bitcoin, the first largest by market cap and best all around, I think we all agree, <laughs> token, I say speaking for myself and implicitly for everyone else on this recording. That is this idea of tracking ownership of stuff on the internet using a blockchain and the stuff that we are tracking with Bitcoin is money. And so for money, it's super duper important to know how much money there is. This is something that isn't particularly offered by most of the conventional systems out there. And so when Bitcoin came around and introduced this idea that not only do we know how many tokens there will eventually be, 21 million, but also, we know exactly how many there are at any given time, and that's something that anyone can find out. You don't have to work at the Eccles building and be kind of part of the Fed. You can just figure it out by using a full node and scanning the blockchain, looking through all of the different unspent transaction outputs, UTXOs as they're called, and adding that up to generate the current amount of tokens that are out there. That's something that I think a lot of people within Bitcoin think is super important, and it is in the use case of money. But Ethereum is a little bit different. Ethereum, some people might think it's money, but that's never really been the use case that it's been going for. And we talked about, you know, on a couple of shows ago, how in the early days of altcoins, all of those altcoins were basically trying to be Bitcoin. They were Bitcoin, but with gold instead of bit in the name, right? Gold coin. And that was basically the entire difference. Like they changed a couple other variables, but fundamentally they were trying to be like Bitcoin. They were trying to be money. And Ethereum came along, and one of the reasons why I think Ethereum was successful is that it was not trying to be Bitcoin. It was introducing new use cases, which were possible on Bitcoin. You know, we were working on token projects and personal tokens and many of the things that are now manifesting in sort of the Ethereum ecosystem way back in 2013, 2014 on top of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin as this ultra secure settlement layer kind of approach that it's gone into is not really the right place for those. And it may eventually become the right place as technologies like lightning or sidechains or other sort of additional layers come around. But Ethereum went a different way. Ethereum put all of that stuff into the protocol at the base layer. And so in a very real way, the Ether token itself is not really about being money. It's more about what do you need within a blockchain system to enable all of these other use cases that we want to do with a blockchain 
but which don't fit into Bitcoin because you have to build them on higher layers. And even so, it's kind of inefficient. I'd go a step further and say Ether is very explicitly a utility token whose purpose is to provide accounting for a Turing complete system that without accounting would result in infinite loops and denial of service. It is gas. That is its primary purpose. Can it also have value outside of that function? Yes. And it can serve the form of money, but the form of money is not its primary purpose. And also sound money is most definitely not its primary purpose. There's a very big difference between the philosophy of hard money as expressed in Bitcoin and the philosophy of utility token for the purpose of gas as expressed in Ethereum. Right. And you could just like transposing this into the real world, like real physical gasoline, right? When you're filling up your car with gas, that is primarily utility. Of course, it has a value, right? There's a set amount of money that it costs to actually consume a gallon of gas. And if you're a prepper, you believe that that's enough of a store value that you build an underground tank and fill it with a thousand gallons of gasoline or diesel. And you say, look, that's my store value because when the apocalypse happens, that's what everybody will want. Right, exactly. So it's possible to speculate in something that is really about the utility of ultimately using it to fuel something. But in kind of much the same way, like if Bitcoin is money... Well, it still is a form of gas. It's just that the use cases in which you would use it as gasoline and the amount that you would use it as gas is much smaller because the only real thing that you would do with it is spend a little bit of it, kind of like a stamp, to send it from one person to another. So at a fundamental philosophical level, Bitcoin is money that also can act as gas when it's required in order to send it, but mostly it's money. And Ether is mostly gas, but it has a value, and so it can be used as money in much the same way. But they're kind of fundamentally different things in what the point is and what the network is trying to create, right? Blockchain systems are all about the incentives that sort of are built into the blockchain based on what you're trying to do with it. Not everything happens the same way because there are different requirements for different types of uses. And I feel like at the core of this sort of disagreement, there's a misunderstanding of that, where on the one side, the Ethereum community is saying, well, the point of this is that it's gasoline and it allows us to do the things with it that we want. And on the other hand, the kind of Bitcoin side is saying, well, that's terrible money. Why don't you treat your gas like we treat our money? They're both kind of the same in theory, but the ways that we use them are fundamentally different. And I feel like there's a problem where neither side is really putting itself into the shoes of the other side and looking at it through that lens. I think that's a very charitable perspective, Adam. Because I think underlying this is not just a misunderstanding of what the use case is. There's also a lot of disinformation happening. And this is very similar to the kind of disinformation and gotcha questions that critics of Bitcoin apply to Bitcoin, whether that's Peter Schiff and Nuro Rubini, or it's Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Satoshi Vision applying to Bitcoin, right? And so the primary form of a gotcha is, I disagree with the design trade-off you've made. I will assume that mine is the correct one and then criticize you for making a different one. And that's the same as big blocks versus small blocks, fee market versus no fee market, segwit versus no segwit, as well as the ease of calculating the precise current supply of Ethereum. 
If you want to take that one further, just to give everyone a charitable or not so charitable reading, just look at, you know, in the very early days of Ethereum, how completely lambasted Vitalik would talk about Dan Larimer and how dumb of an idea proof of stake was to scale a system and that, you know, Ethereum was going to be proof of work, which was vastly superior to any conceptualization of proof of stake. No blockchain needs to be proof of stake. So, you know, this notion of my idea is better than yours, but when I can figure out how to make it work is a very Apple, like everything is shit until I make it work. And then it's the most brilliant idea ever. Well, I think the other thing that kind of drives this whole discussion is the market conditions. It's not a coincidence that this is happening during a period of a couple of weeks when Bitcoin is seeing a huge appreciation and that's get it creating a lot of excitement and bringing a lot of new people into the overall space. And at the same time, Ethereum is seeing an even greater appreciation percentage wise because it had retrenched a bit further. And that's also attracting a lot of newbies. And so I think part of this is a battle of minds. It's a battle for the attention and interest of people who are new to the space. And as a result, a lot of people feel the need to defend not just their principles, but their investments by gatekeeping on behalf of the newbies in the interest of the newbies to keep them safe from scammers that might be out there scamming them with alternative ideas. And I think that is a bit self-righteous, but also self-defeating. I don't think newbies should be prevented from learning for themselves what these things are. And I think a lot of this gatekeeping ultimately alienates a lot of the people who are entering this space, because while they're trying to find alternatives to the traditional financial system and alternative uses for blockchains, not just money, this kind of gatekeeping creates an environment which is really quite nasty to enter into. And it's also very confusing. So I don't think ultimately this is a productive use of anybody's time. But sometimes a time suck is a very effective mechanism to shift the argument. So I love talking about unconscious motivations and psychological reasons for stuff, economic behaviors and social behaviors. But I have a question about, like, why do people want to discover the supply of Ethereum? Like, what are they trying to use that data for? I'm sure there's good reasons for it, but I'm not seeing them right now. Well, this started because the primary place where people look, which is etherscan.io, was reporting a number that was different from a few other block explorers. And I can't remember who was somebody challenged people from Ethereum to tell us, okay, so what is the correct number? And so that was the basis. And then I think that whole argument was seized upon because, you know, very similar to the gotcha arguments against Bitcoin. It seems to be a frame that, based on some very specific assumptions, completely invalidates the purpose of the competing chain. And therefore, we're going to use it as a cudgel to beat anyone who has an alternative opinion. Exactly the same thing. You know, it's what others use. Concentration of miners in China, the energy consumption of Luxembourg, and the remote possibility of a 51% attack that doesn't actually achieve anything proves that Bitcoin is worthless. It's the same kind of basic argument. Okay, so it's basically like a factoid that people want to use for whatever purpose they are interested in. 
A factoid in the original definition, which is a misleading non-fact that is repeated often enough that it's taken to be true, even though there is no true basis for it. And let me just clarify the most important part, because it kind of seemed, Adam, that you were making the similar assumption. The underlying issue here on this factoid is that you can't calculate the supply of ether clearly and easily, and that's because it's not important to people in Ethereum. That's not true. It simply isn't true. The exact same way that you can calculate the supply of Bitcoin, you can calculate the supply of Ethereum, and it is calculated with every new block. It is part of the consensus mechanism. If you run a fully verifying node on Ethereum, you have a piece of software that validates the current supply of Ethereum every block. There's no difference in that fundamental function. The difference is that Bitcoin Core, one of the client software systems for Bitcoin, has a single API call that reports the summary. And Ethereum clients don't. That's it. That's the difference. And so because the Ethereum clients don't, you have to extract that information and feed it to a SQL database, just like Block explorers extract all of the other information that they do, both consensus and non-consensus, and report on it. And depending on the methodology you use, you might get a different answer. That doesn't mean that the client doesn't have a consensus number that is tracking. It does, absolutely does. And you can write a script that extracts that consensus answer for a specific block height. It's just that nobody is that interested in putting that into an API call. And nobody is that interested in the discrepancies that exist between different methodologies reported by different block explorers on a number that isn't that important to the Ethereum ecosystem. Of course, the underlying issue is why is it not important or why is it not as important as it is in Bitcoin? But the underlying fact, not the factoid, but the fact is that this is a consensus enforced issuance mechanism exactly like Bitcoin. And so there is no discrepancy. If you have a discrepancy as to what you think a block issued as its issuance of Ether, you get booted off the consensus chain. You hard fork yourself. It's as simple as that. So anybody who's on the consensus chain of Ethereum has arrived at the same consensus as to exactly what the supply is. There's no technical difference. So I don't want to get bogged down in technicals or anything like this, but I do think that it's worth mentioning that structurally there are a couple of differences, one primary difference between how Bitcoin works as far as like just the way that these transfers happen versus something like Ethereum. And I am familiar with this because this is how Counterparty works. And Counterparty worked and I worked in that space for a good long time. It's basically the difference between Bitcoin is like moving around pieces of cash that are specifically sized to whatever it to the exact change that you want. So instead of just having dollar bills, we have $1 and 15.3 cents. Like if that's how much money you want to send to someone, you don't send them $2 bills that equal that together. You send them $1 bill and that's called a UTXO or an unspent transaction output. And so when you receive that, you now have in your wallet this kind of weirdly shaped amount of money, this again physical bill equivalent. And then if I want to send, you know, half of that amount, then I effectively, when I'm making a transfer, turn that one bill into two bills, one bill that is exactly the amount that I want to go to the person who I'm sending it to, and one bill that I return to myself, that is the change. And so in that way, the way that you can calculate Bitcoin supply currently relatively easily is by just counting 
what are all of the current bills that are out there in circulation? Ethereum doesn't have that. Ethereum works on this sort of account approach versus a UTXO approach. It's a double entry bookkeeping ledger system with account balances. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the kind of simple way to think about that is that instead of dealing with cash like you do in Bitcoin, you're kind of dealing with a checkbook where instead of using a bank to settle and to actually transfer the money, the blockchain is settling and transferring the money. So you write a check to someone, you send them a check on the blockchain, they cash it on the blockchain, and the transfer from your account to their account is executed by the blockchain. There are actually a number of good parts about that in terms of it making it more efficient for certain types of transfers. But the downside about that is here's all the cash that's out there that you can count. And so in Counterparty, what we used to have to do, and this is true in Ethereum too, is that the way that you calculate the supply of any given token is you look back through the entire history of the chain and you look at all of the transfers that have ever happened and then you effectively uh, rationalize those, right? You put them into, a, all right, here's the composite history. And at the end of that history, I know everything. I know what the current state of the balance is. One of the other things that's different about Ethereum versus Bitcoin is that the blocks just happen a lot faster. You know, it's, I think, 15-second blocks, Andreas? Yeah, there's 40 blocks for every one block of Bitcoin. So depending on when you ask that question, you're going to get a different answer because there's still checks coming in. Right, exactly. So again, like the accuracy of that number at any given moment is harder to be accurate in Ethereum simply because it's updating that number 40 times as often. And that, again, has to then you know, filter out to the entire network. And so on one part of the network that's receiving information a little slower, it might be a little bit behind. So those numbers could be different. But fundamentally, again, like, it's really just, I think, a philosophical question here. Like, clearly, it matters for consensus. But for the story that Ethereum is telling, does it matter? Does Ethereum want to be money? And even if it does want to be money, is that even a use case it can reasonably go after? Or is it more about kind of all the other stuff? And you just need some type of, as we've said, utility token? in order to kind of enable that. And in my opinion, they're fundamentally different use cases that require fundamentally different design trade-offs, which have caused the two coins to diverge evolutionary to a point where they can't fulfill each other's goals. I've described that in great detail in a talk I called The Lion and the Shark. And the idea here is that you have two apex predators, which are by default not competing. They cannot compete. And so trying to figure out which is better, a lion and a shark, doesn't really make a lot of sense. It also doesn't make a lot of sense to criticize the shark for having insufficient claws and therefore being incapable of catching a gazelle, or for uh, criticize the lion for swimming in a rather awkward way. Now, it doesn't mean that the lion can swim. Sure, it can. It's just, you know silly compared to a shark swimming. And it doesn't mean that a shark can't catch a gazelle. You know, if it walks close enough to the beach and the circumstances are just right, it's going to happen. And there will always be people on both sides who claim that it can do both. There will be the fish who claim that, in fact, the shark is the king of the savanna, but has just chosen not to go in that direction right now. And there will be people who claim that if any time the lion wants, it can jump in the sea and eat everything. And they're wrong. And it's not worth really examining that question any further. For every Bitcoin maximalist who says Ethereum isn't money, but Bitcoin can do smart contracts, which is wrong. There's an Ethereum maximalist who say Bitcoin can't do smart contracts, but Ethereum can do sound money. Also wrong at least in my opinion. And I don't need them to be what the other is. In fact, 
if you try to make Bitcoin run smart contracts, you ruin the properties that make it sound money. And if you try to make Ethereum do sound money, you ruin the properties that keep it a utility token for smart contracts. And so they shouldn't try to be each other. But if you're a mammal and you're looking at the King of Savannah and you're really, really in love with that particular model, it's very easy to hurl accusations about, you know, I can't quite tell how many feet you have, Mr. Shark, and clearly that's the reason you can't run in the Savannah. It's a silly argument. It's a silly argument because it doesn't make sense as a framing assumption in that context. It simply doesn't. And it's also untrue. You can actually count. It's four feet. We just call them fins and two of them are joined as a tail. But anatomically, they're still there. They're still exactly the same. They have the same number of joints. They just work differently because they don't need to work the same way. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. The show is in transition and we appreciate you listening through our private feeds. This and the next batch of episodes will be released exclusively on these channels. And as of today, we're officially the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show. We've ended our relationship with the LTV network that I founded in 2014 and which was acquired by BTC Media in 2017. Someday I'll tell that story because there are lessons to be learned, certainly ones that I did. But for now, things are in flux and I wanted to invite comment from our longtime audience before I start making big changes. This is episode 442 of the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show, and in that time, we've had a lot of great conversation. But as we enter this new era, the next eight years of the show, we're considering whether to remain entirely sponsor-supported or open up to an ad-free Patreon-style direct support path. This would probably manifest as both an actual Patreon page for those who prefer it, and a tokenized platform path through the products we've created at Tokenly over the last five years. At the lower end of direct support, you'd get ad-free episodes and the occasional blooper. On the other end, we'd do monthly or twice-monthly virtual meetups where you could ask questions and get answers immediately from some of the show hosts. If we set this up, would you like to participate? Send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com and let me know what you think either way. On the content side of things, given the clean break and the new era of podcasts that we're in, I've been thinking this could be the moment to expand the conversation and start to focus on big changes that are inbound in the next 10 years. Bitcoin and the age of cryptocurrencies plays a big part of that, but it's not the whole story. And if we zoom out a little bit more without getting into politics, I think there's some interesting and original conversations to be had. Or maybe not. If you have thoughts about either of these two questions, let me know at adamandltbshow.com. And in the meantime, if you like the show and you haven't reviewed it recently on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform, we'd very much appreciate you doing so. Marketing has never been my strong suit. And you can help us out quite a bit by letting others know what you think of the show, whether it's leaving a review or even just telling a friend. Thanks very much for listening. And now, back to the show. Earlier this year, I worked with a podcaster named Anita Posh, who does a show called Bitcoin und Co. Andreas, I think you've done a show with her before, too? Oh, yeah. Anita's a great podcaster and also translated both of my books into German or participated in translating one and translated the other one. Sehr gut. <laughs> yeah, she's superb. And she does really some interesting podcasts in German. Yeah, I haven't listened to any of the German ones, but I worked with her on a series earlier this year called Bitcoin in Africa. I think it was called Bitcoin in Africa, not crypto in Africa, but I think it was Bitcoin in Africa. Anyways, point is, is that she actually went down to Zimbabwe for a couple of weeks and did a bunch of interviews and did effectively like a five episode or six episode series based off of that, that I'll link in the show notes of this. It's really worth listening to. Very kind of documentary-esque with, you know, some musical stuff. And I helped edit it just 
patting myself on the back there for that. I'm very happy with how it came out. Anyways, point broadly is, is that one of the things that I learned from listening to that series was that the majority of transactions that happen in Zimbabwe, something like 85% of them actually happen through what are called mobile money services. And we've talked about these types of things in the past, although it may have been a couple of years, but the one that immediately comes to mind is something like M-Pesa, which effectively started off as a way to take phone credits and then bridged that into a form of money and a form of money that you didn't need to have a bank account to use. You could just use it on your phone. And so because these are places that lack infrastructure, but they have the ability to use these phones and these systems that use phones, they're able to kind of jump straight from not having any sort of good technological solutions to having actually a pretty good technological solution. So it was interesting to me, I guess it was back in June at this point, when Zimbabwe entered hyperinflation again, and effectively the first thing that they did was they banned these services. The thing I want to talk about today is the challenge of, on the one hand, getting adoption with decentralized solutions, like Bitcoin, of course, that have no kind of company advocating for it, And on the other hand, the downside of taking the company approach, which is that you rely on the government as a means to conduct business at all. And the government has a meaningful incentive when things go wrong, as they've gone in Zimbabwe recently, to stop any alternative that allows people to escape a failing system. Because if they escape the failing system, then it actually compounds the problem that the bank or the government is trying to get around. Fundamentally, hyperinflation is not a lot of money printing. It's a crisis in confidence of the money that is being printed. And so that crisis of confidence leads to people valuing the money less, which then leads to the government or whoever's the issuer who's trying to pay for stuff using that currency to need to create more. And it creates this vicious cycle. Even more so, the crisis of confidence isn't just in the currency. Fundamentally, it's in the government. It's in the management of the currency, yeah. Right, because if the currency is fiat, then fiat means by the government decree it has value. So the crisis is really in government. So I'm going to read the press statement here from the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe, which they released on Twitter on June 27th of this year. Quote, following the government press release on the suspension of monetary transactions on mobile-based money platforms, One Money, My Cash, EcoCash, and Telecash. EcoCash was talked about extensively in the Anita series. That was the one that I was familiar with. Dated 26th of July, 2020, the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe wishes to advise the public as follows. A, all mobile money agents are suspended from facilitating mobile financial transactions immediately. B, all merchant transactions are suspended except for receiving payments for goods and services as well as payment of utilities, which have been limited to 5,000 Zimbabwe dollars per day for the convenience of the transacting public. C, all mobile money liquidations should be done through the banking system. And D, all bulk payer transactions have been suspended with immediate effect. These unprecedented measures have been necessitated by the need to protect consumers on mobile money platforms, which have been abused by unscrupulous and unpartisan, that's unpartisan, not partisan, individuals and entities to create instability and inefficiencies in the economy. Members of the public are assured that their bona fide transactions will be processed normally. There's a lot to unpack here. Where do you guys want to start? I think we can simplify it quite a lot. It's the well-known traditional firefighting technique of locking all the doors in order to motivate the people inside to be less flammable. Right. Uh, That's basically the idea. And it works as well as you might expect, or at least there aren't many complaints after the fact. 
So do you think that this is enforceable or is it just a joke? <laughs> well, this is 100% enforceable. All of these companies operate with the permission of and largely in partnership with these governments. Effectively, you can't operate in a country as a company, right? Like as a protocol like Bitcoin, like who are they going to shut down, right? Who are they going to go after? Who are they going to force to go through the banking system? They can try and go after exchanges. They can try and go after, you know, centralized companies that, again, rely on licensing or some sort of, you know, have to pay their taxes or whatever. But for a protocol, that's not really a thing. But if you're one of these mobile money companies, well, you've got staff, you've got offices, you've got kind of all of these services, you've got all of these relationships. And now suddenly your service is not just persona non grata, but is actually being blamed for the underlying mismanagement of the currency by the government. Because who else are they going to blame? I mean, like there's literally nobody else to blame except for these companies that didn't, they're not responsible for monetary policy but they provide alternatives to people to the monetary policy of the local government. And in a time when there's this crisis of confidence, any alternative simply cannot be allowed because it compounds the problem. The essence of this is the fundamental feature of decentralized systems, which is permissionless operation, even more important than trustless operation, permissionless operation. And when you sacrifice that a tiny bit in order to ask for permission, in order to be granted permission, the first kind of litmus test is whether you can be stopped. You know, they won't allow any kind of infrastructure to operate that doesn't have built-in controls that allow turning it off. So, you know, you can't be half permissionless. You can't be somewhat permissionless. You're either permissionless or you're permissioned. And if you're permissioned, permission can be denied and often is. In fact, it's denied at precisely the moment when this technology is both meaningful and necessary. When it's not meaningful or not necessary, doesn't really need to be denied. And therein lies the problem, honestly, like where it's not important enough, then these centralized solutions are much more efficient. They're often much easier to use. Again, just by nature of being centralized versus decentralized, this is kind of true across the board of most things you want to look at. But the thing that they fall down on is that when you actually really need them, then they won't be allowed. And it's that ability to not be allowed that presents the problem. And really, you know, like, again, they make them good day-to-day -day transactional things. But in situations where you're looking for a solution to your problem of, I don't trust my local government to manage the money properly because they're taking us into hyperinflation, again, like, no solution can be allowed to that problem because it comes to the detriment of the control of the situation for the government. I want to drill in on this unpartisan thing because that is not a typo. That is a actual word in this screenshotted press release released on the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe, which is at Reserve Zim on Twitter, like as a way to announce this. But aren't opposition parties banned? The whole point here is that regardless of whether opposition parties are banned, this is not claiming that they are partisan. No, no, no. That's the opposite. In countries where opposition is banned, patriotism and partisanship, supporting the party in power, is entirely equivalent to supporting the nation. Therefore, to be unpartisan is to be unpatriotic. It's to be a traitor. Interesting. And so it's the same thing as, you know, membership of the Communist Party of China or even membership of the Nazi party in the 30s, you don't have an option to be in opposition. To be in opposition to the party when the party is the state is to be in opposition to the state, which is to be in opposition to the nation. And so that's exactly what they mean here. 
you have to be partisan because that's equivalent to being patriotic. So it's Orwellian doublespeak because since the government made it illegal to be a partisan, there's no such thing as partisan, but one could be unpartisan. Exactly. Yeah, Orwellian triplespeak, yes. <laughs> right. So again, looking at the definition of unpartisan, it means impartial and unbiased. So again, like we live in a country that has, you know, nominally a two-party system and people talk about sort of partisanship all the time. They talk about bias all the time. And the implicit assumption there is that, you know, kind of like the conversation we were talking about earlier with Bitcoin and Ethereum, people pick a side. They put on a team jersey and then they argue in favor of whatever their partisan cause is. But in this case, what you're saying, I think is fascinating, which is that in situations where you don't have competition, it's not a choice of being a partisan for one side or the other. It's a choice of being partisan, which means patriotic, as you said, or being unpartisan, which means non-patriotic. So the act of being unbiased or not being willing to pick a side is actually picking a side. It's just in a much smaller sort of arena of choice. Now you know why every European in America had their hair stand on edge when George W. Bush said, you're either with us or against us. Right. That's very much the sentiment here. Every European recognized that from history. It's a new sentiment here, but it's not at all a new sentiment in the political history of Europe. And it's not at all a new sentiment in the political history of sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, that is the case. And it goes even further than that. It's not just association with party and nation. Very often in these family legacy dynasty types of dictatorships, it goes further. It's affiliation and allegiance to the specific person in whom the presidency has been vested in an almost imperial level, right? And to be disloyal to the person is to be disloyal to the country. Yeah, it's like this big, weird, abusive family or something. Although the best one is North Korea, because they have effectively what's called a necrocracy, because the original Kim, the grandfather who died 15 or 20 years ago, is still the head of state, ceremonially the head of state forever, eternal leader. And as a result, it's a necrocracy, which means it is governed by the dead. So I've got a study pulled up. It's from Statistica. So again, take with a grain of salt. Let's see. This was 1,000 to 4,000 respondents per country. So not a tiny sample, but, you know, obviously, again, grain of salt. But yeah, they showed that share of respondents in selected countries who said that they used or owned cryptocurrency. So this is not even aware of cryptocurrency. This is actually used or at least own cryptocurrency. 32% of respondents in Nigeria, 21% of respondents in Vietnam, 17% of respondents in South Africa, 16% in Turkey, 16% in Peru, 10% in Spain, 8% in China, 7% in the US, 6% in Germany, and 4% in Japan looks like on the other end of the spectrum. I just think it's really ironic that the bottom of the chart was Japan, which is like, I always associate that with Mt. Gox, you know? I wonder how many of those Nigerians got their first Bitcoin from LTB coin. <laughs> One of the funniest things, I don't think we ever talked about it on air, Adam. But when LTB coin came about and we did the magic words giveaway, could you talk about the actual distribution of the geography of the participants in that and how the incentives played into that? Yeah. So for newer listeners from, I think, 2014 through 2017, we did a program called LTB coin that was like a tokenized rewards program. So for listening to the show and, you know, for contributing to the site and for commenting on the site and stuff like that, we would give out these tokens every week. And yeah, one of the things that we noticed was that 
like the value is the same for everybody, right? Because Bitcoin exchanges and cryptocurrency exchanges are global for the most part. And so especially in those early days before KYC was super common everywhere, we would kind of see lots of different people participate, but different behaviors for different groups. And what we figured out is that it's the difference in local value that really determined what the behavior was going to be. Because for people in the United States, you know, we were talking about, you know, amounts of money that were dollars, right? Dollars worth if you were going to go and sell them for the average person. But that dollars worth here, if you go to some place like I remember Ukraine really jumped out at me. And I think Vietnam, too. I think we had a large community there as well. Basically, the amount of money that you could get for that amount of money was just substantially more. And so a lot of people started actually kind of farming the activities that we were trying to incentivize. I remember in particular, we had these forums that basically we had very large groups of foreign language individuals show up and actually talk about stuff in a foreign language. And they set up their own forums within our forums. We let them do it. That were specifically for that. They moderated themselves. And because every week we gave out a defined pool that was just split between kind of different participants based on how much they contributed over the course of that week relative to everybody else, it actually was a self-policing system too. Because people who were, you know, trying to farm in the Ukrainian area would, you know, call out people in the Ukrainian area who were just posting spam because that spam diluted their share uh, if it wasn't called out. And so it was actually this really interesting thing. But anyways, yeah. Interesting example there, Jonathan. I don't know what the answer to that question is. Well, the idea also, I don't think you mentioned this, Adam, but the idea was that it's proof of listening, right? And so you would listen to the show and then you would hear the magic word and then you could go to the website and put it in and interact and then you would get rewarded based on that. Yeah, that was one of the ways to do it. There were like six or, I don't know, maybe 10 different things that we were tracking. But yeah, that was one of our favorites for sure, the Magic Words program. But I just remember looking at the analytics one day when we were talking yeah. about it. And it was it was mostly like Ukraine and parts of Africa. And I'm like, wow, that makes sense when you actually think about the economics of it. Yeah, no, for sure. And just in general, I think that the big takeaway here is that the incentive to learn about this stuff, the incentive to take a concept that you're just not familiar with like money and want to learn about it is really lopsided, where if money is a problem for you, be it because you don't have enough or because it doesn't work or any sort of other reason that would make money a problem, then you have this huge incentive to look for alternatives. But if you're like, well, you know, I have a job and I get paid, you know, I have a W-2, you know, where my taxes are automatically being withdrawn and I have to think about that, then the incentive to do it outside of just speculating on potential future value is a lot lower. And I think to a degree, that's what we're seeing in these results is that as sort of money becomes more or less of a problem, and that might not be right now, it might be historically, right? Because these lessons stay with us. When we, you know, when we get hit, we remember it. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't necessarily have to be today. And then you, know, you get down to the Spains and the Chinas and the US, and there, again, it seems like it's mostly on the speculative side. But in those other countries, again, South Africa, a lot of instability there, Vietnam, I don't know, is Vietnam particularly unstable? I'm actually a little surprised that's as high as it is. Yeah, the currency has had some inflationary oh, the issue, the dong. Yeah. Oh, man. I remember back before I got into cryptocurrency when I was looking at the Iraqi dinar, which was another basically non-existent currency because the U.S. had come in and supplanted it with something else. The Vietnam dong was like in the same category of something where it's like there was always this idea that there was going to be a revaluation. So perhaps indeed it is higher on the instability curve than that. There's really nothing worse than an unstable dong, you know, constantly <laughs> inflating and deflating. 
You never know which way it's going to go. You know, it's mostly inflating. And, uh, you know, as the advice goes, if it inflates for more than four hours, you should probably seek medical attention. (laughs) You know, there are two categories of people who I think you need to spend zero in advertising to reach. And that's expecting mothers and people currently in a monetary crisis. (laughs) And unfortunately, the expecting mothers have foresight, whereas people in a monetary crisis don't do any education until. It's a bit too late, but we get them after when things come normal. And that's why, you know, Bitcoin was so excited when the Cyprus experience happened, because we finally had an I told you so moment for most of Europe. And hopefully Zimbabwe, Zimbabweing again, will bring about a large group of Zimbabwe people to the crypto cause. I mean, for next time, maybe. But I think that's the real challenge when it comes to all of this stuff is that the lessons that we have to learn about this, ultimately, as you said, they're like they're lessons that don't have any sort of staying power before something terrible happens. And then after something terrible happens, well, chances are pretty good that the opportunity that you may have had there is gone. If just because the price of you know Bitcoin or any sort of alternative is skyrocketing because your money is devaluing at that point. If you're already into that cycle, yeah. In defense of the people of Zimbabwe when it comes to this hyperinflation event and then also just understanding of crypto, you know, you have to get burnt before you realize what being burnt feels like. And when it comes to money, you know, you kind of need to go through something in order to have that experience. And I was looking it up just to double check. The average age in Zimbabwe is 20. So it's a very young culture. So if something happened 35 years ago, you haven't been burnt. You know, it's far before our time, but people who went through the Great Depression and how that fundamentally changed the rest of their life and how they acted. And hopefully this isn't a Great Depression for America, but it may be. And, you know, if a crisis that changes the way you see the world, it happened longer than the average age of that nation, then you just have another culture needing to be reminded about why those values of those edge cases are important to hedge against. And I think, you know, we're going through that right now in America. And unfortunately, the lessons from a long time ago don't apply to a culture whose age is younger than the problem that when it occurred last. One of the criticisms is levied against this kind of salvation thinking that exists within crypto, and I've certainly been accused of it myself, is that Bitcoin can't help Zimbabwe. And I think it's very important to recognize that that is 100% true. Bitcoin can't help Zimbabwe, not today, for a variety of reasons. Some of them have to do with Zimbabwe. You need a fairly robust underlying infrastructure, uh, especially connected to internet data of sufficient capacity that's not just kind of a Facebook portal, but actual data. You need certain infrastructural components and at least some institutions of civil society to support these things. And while Zimbabwe may have the institutions of civil society, unlike, say, North Korea, It doesn't have some of the technological infrastructure, not yet quite developed. But the other argument, which I think is even more valid, is that Bitcoin doesn't have the technological maturity, ease of use, and price point at the moment to support that. So yes, theoretically, Zimbabweans could adopt Bitcoin, but could they adopt Bitcoin on the main chain? No, not really. The fees exceed even the wildest dreams of daily income for the vast majority of the population. So if you can't do a single transaction because it's your week's salary and transaction fees, then that's not usable. It's completely unusable. All right, sure. So 
Lightning then? Well, not even close to being ready. And all you've done there is raise the bar for technological infrastructure, right? Because that now requires all online all the time, or you end up with a custodial solution and a custodial solution requires in-country infrastructure. It's a whole mess. So I think it's important to make two statements here. One, it's not ready. Bitcoin isn't ready to help Zimbabwe, not now, maybe not in five years, maybe not in 10 years. And that's okay because none of that invalidates the underlying premise that these types of technologies are about banking the unbanked or debanking all of us or enabling economic utility and access to finance. Just because we can't do it now doesn't mean it's not the long-term vision and it doesn't mean that it won't be doable in the future. And in fact, to me at least, it's the biggest motivator. But we would be hypocrites if we didn't acknowledge that just because that's the long-term vision and it's a very important vision, that it's possible now. It's not. So you can look at Zimbabwe and say, sorry, not this time, but maybe next time, maybe the time after that. And of course, in order to get there, the education starts now. There's a much larger conversation to be had here about the transition that the world is going through and, you know, the different ways that that could go, which we've talked about on the show before, but not recently, considering everything that's happened <laughs> in the last year or so, you know, but for the purposes of today, I'd like to leave you just with one thought. I'm okay with you being unpartisan. <laughs> I actually would like us to be a little unpartisan, not necessarily unbiased in a way that's, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, going to cost me money. But uh, I'm just kidding. But no, I mean, the unpartisan thing, like that blew my mind, to be perfectly honest with you, like that I've never thought about it that way. I've always thought about it in the context of partisanship, which is I view as bad, frankly, versus unpartisan, you know, someone who is not partisan or who is unbiased. And again, that's just meaning that always is meant to me. You just don't put on a team jersey, right? You'd like you don't cement the relationship because things could change. And when things change. I personally always like the ideological flexibility to be able to adjust my perspective to whatever the evidence shows me today. And if you kind of get sucked into that whole, well, I'm so invested in, again, like, I like Bitcoin. <laughs> We've been doing a show for a long time about it. But at the same time, like, I feel like I have a little bit of distance from it that is sometimes hard to find in the more vocal parts of the space where it's like, well, my future is tied up in the future of Bitcoin, and therefore I need to defend it in much the same way that people defend political parties today, I think. I'd like to inject a thought to wrap my previous thought. The criticism that you can't do these things with Bitcoin today because of high fees, however, also has a counter which is rather disingenuous. And that is, but you can do it with coin X that has very, very low fees. But let's remember the beginning of this conversation. The beginning of this conversation was that the permission systems in Zimbabwe were suddenly and capriciously unpermissioned, unpermitted. And the reason that could happen is because they were permissioned, because they required permission. And the reason that Bitcoin is expensive in terms of fees is to maintain decentralization is to maintain permissionless operation. So the answer isn't as simple as we can save Zimbabwe today with a more centralized, more efficient system that costs less in fees. The lesson that comes to us from Zimbabwe is no, you can't do that either. Because when you go down that path, you don't have the fee problem anymore. 
Now you have the much bigger problem, which is permission denied. And Bitcoin is permissionless because it is decentralized and it is decentralized because of some of the mechanisms like fees. And just to tag on to that point, for a long time, I thought that the fees thing was super important and was a reason why we would see adoption of things that are not Bitcoin, that have lower fees, as you were saying, Andreas, in other countries that have different standards of value and where those transaction fees can really add up. I remember looking at the cost of transactions back in 2017 and being like, oh my God, this is like a huge amount of money for me. And like people in India, again, like there's just no way that they're going to ever do anything with this if that's kind of the reality that they have to deal with. But then we did a series of interviews, I think six interviews with Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. We talked to people in Nigeria and the Philippines and India and Venezuela and Iran. And we asked all of them that question. What do you use first off? Is it Bitcoin? Is it something else? What do you think the percentage is? And are the fees a problem? Like, are they standing in the way of meaningful adoption? And the answer was that if you have no alternative, like if this is the best alternative that is available and the thing that allows you to get outside of the problem that you're trying to solve, whether in the case of someplace like Iran, where you're trying to, you know, conduct business with anywhere else in the world that isn't Iran when you've been kicked out of the SWIFT system, you know, or you're talking about Nigeria or the Philippines, you know, where there's like a huge remittance use case for people working in Saudi Arabia and trying to send money back. Well, the reality of it is, is that compared to the alternatives, even at these high prices as we perceive them, it is still by far the most cost-effective option. So like there's the day-to-day -day use, like could these countries switch over to using Bitcoin as their transactional currency, like they use mobile money today? And I think that you're totally right. No, the answer there is no, we are not ready. Actually, it is possible. It is possible in exactly the same way that it is possible to build a centralized, efficient, zero-fee structure on top of a decentralized inefficient and costly structure. And that's Coinbase or any other centralized exchange. You could easily do that. You can build local Bitcoins. You can build things that keep it off chain that are centralized. So when all of the others have been denied, then you're only left with the pure permissionless system. But if we wanted to compete against something that costs very low in fees, but is much more centralized, well, Bitcoin can easily compete with that. You just take an amount of Bitcoin, you park it, that's your reserve, and then you build a SQL database that transacts for zero fees off-chain on top of that. That's what every exchange does. And if you transfer from one account in the exchange to the other account in the exchange, the fee is zero or can be zero. And what have you done? You've resolved the trade-off in exactly the same way. You've centralized it and made it very, very low cost or free. It's very possible to simulate that environment on top of Bitcoin. But of course, the moment you do that, that simulation itself is no longer permissionless because you can just shut it down. So if there is a central part, you can make it efficient, but it will be shut down. I guess the takeaway here is that if these mobile money systems in the Zimbabwe situation or another situation that's similar were using Bitcoin as their kind of base layer of truth, right, of the here's the underlying settlement layer, and then we have this centralized structure on top of it. Well, if the centralized structure gets shut down, you still have that layer. And I think that that perhaps is the problem here is that these companies have effectively been demonized because they offer an alternative to, you know, the status quo. And in times of crisis, alternatives cannot be allowed. But you could have your cake and eat it too. If you built 
these services with that potential event in mind. Again, like if I was going to be building a company in Zimbabwe that was trying to do mobile money, it seems like that would be implicit to what you would need. But on the other hand, thinking about it again, as a centralized company, you need the permission and partnership to a certain extent of the government in order to do that. And the government, again, probably wouldn't let you do it if that was the way that your system was built. So there is this inherent problem between these centralized systems and the control that is necessary in order to manage money in this irresponsible way without effectively blowing up your government that I don't know how we get past. And it seems like, again, it's just not about Bitcoin. It's about the people and their governments and the relationship between the two. And Bitcoin can offer an escape valve, you know, for someone who's looking for ways to perhaps store value over a longer period of time. But as a day-to-day transactional thing, it just seems like that's a problem no matter how you hit it. Well, no, not entirely. I think it's a matter of maturity. Given time and development, and we're already beginning to see that, I think you can see some very, very efficient, non-custodial lightning wallets that are decentralized, that don't have single points of failure, that are permissionless, that do not require trust in other parties, and that can work on very low-powered devices with very efficient use of data. Getting all of those components together in a polished interface that can actually survive an attack by a government is a bit harder and is probably many years out. But it's doable. And at that point, then we're really talking about have your cake and eat it too. I think we can square this circle. I think we can create systems that are efficient from a fee perspective, that allow microtransactions that are compatible with the earning capability and purchasing power of a developing nation, even a nation in economic crisis, but are still permissionless and trustless. Just not yet. All right, so a quick bonus segment before we end the show. Uh, We're talking about yams. (laughs) What's yam? (laughs) Well, yam is the canary in the coal mine that tells me at least that we are either in the midst of or at the very beginning of another goddamn ICO craze. Oh, my God. That was exactly my reaction, too. Yes. It's happening again. And it's very disappointing that... The new wave of newbies are getting fooled into this, but it's a really spectacular story. So this is a system that launched two days ago and then ended today. Tuesday to Thursday. Yeah, the life cycle's gotten really short on these. Remember when you couldn't shut down a crypto project? I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think this is an exit scam, but it is an exit yam. A yam scam. (laughs) Well, so, okay, as much fun as the puns are, let's pull back from that. What does YAM actually do? What was the point of it? What was the thing that people were actually interested in it for? I don't actually know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a yield farming. It's a yield farming. I I knew it was related to that. So it's a distributed finance. It's a decentralized finance, DeFi as they call it, yield farming protocol. And it was pushed out without a pre-mine, without founder allocations. And so it was viewed by many as kind of this kind of clean and pure project. And it was launched with no value in it. And then people started putting value in it. I think that there was like millions of dollars. It was very, very heavily pumped over a period of two days. They raised, well, they captured about $80 million of, let's call it funds under management or funds in the contract in order to do yield farming. 
And then they discovered a bug. And this bug is really spectacular because what ended up happening is Yam ended up 51% attacking itself. So <laughs> it has a governance mechanism that allows changes to be made to the contract with a quorum of votes based on ownership of Yam. It also has a mechanism where it will mine Yam into a reserve fund. And somehow there was a bug in there where it actually counted the yam that was in the reserve fund as part of the necessary count for the quorum and ended up mining enough yam into the reserve funds that it exceeded 51% of total yam issuance, which means the rest of the yam that's actually accessible to vote isn't enough to reach quorum. So you can't change the contract or change the bug in the contract that cause you to not be able to change the contract. So if 51% attacked itself. I just want to say, again, like, we're now five years into Ethereum. Smart contracts as a concept are cool. They continue to terrify me because of stuff like this and because of kind of the emergent complexity of this. And again, the reason why people have gone this governance token route is because otherwise, if you don't have a governance token that decentralizes who gets to make decisions about what the protocol is going to do, then you have a different problem, which is that you have the ability for one or a small group of people to basically be benevolent, you hope, dictators over it and make changes that you hope are good. And also, you hope, protect the security of the authority that they can use to enact those changes so that it's not actually turned against you as an attack. And if you don't have a mechanism at all, then any bug becomes a terminal bug because you can't actually fix it because no one has control of the contract. So this is double-edged sword. But I mean, again, at the same time, you know, this is a classic leopards ate my face, but I'm still glad I went into the leopard cage because they're cute and purring. The bottom line here is this is a contract that was launched with basically zero auditing that had zero history and a whole bunch of people piled a whole bunch of money into it without any regards to the maturity of smart contracts. Smart contracts are things that gain maturity over many, many, many iterations and should be considered unsafe until proven through longevity and repeated attacks. Otherwise, this was not the case with yams. These were, you know, barely boiled yams, and we all know what that tastes like. <laughs> oh, man. This whole kind of process that's happened just in the last two days, I think we're in day three now, like, this is crazy insofar as how much it, on the one hand, feels like the ICO thing. But how fast it happened is just mind-boggling. And it's not to say that there weren't projects like this, whether using smart contracts or not, that just kind of collapsed under their own weight. But the amount of money that was raised here, you know, in the amount of time that we're talking about, that's the thing that makes it feel very ICO-esque. And it's not to say that it's just this project. It's not even just cryptocurrency as a whole. If you look at traditional markets right now, like that feels just like ICOs to me as well. Right. Look what happened to Kodak the other day. During the ICO boom, the people who took the dumbest risks and the biggest bets on things that did not make any sense or have any there there behind them still made stupid amounts of money for long periods of time. And it was only kind of, you know, like a year or a year and a half, two years into the cycle that you saw many of those people who effectively made just a ridiculous amount of money, millions and millions of dollars for people who started with, who I know, who started with, you know, $10,000, something like that, they started taking meaningful losses because the whole market turned against them. 
Yeah, it took months for you to become a Johnny-come-lately bag holder. Now you can be a Johnny-come-lately bag holder 48 hours after the launch. Exactly. (laughs) Amazing. Holding a bag of yams. (laughs) I guess that's an improvement versus the other one because at least it's sending the right signals, right? It's not like these people are going to be like, man, that was wildly successful for me until, you know, six months later when something terrible happened. This was something terrible happened basically immediately. It's the Silicon Valley ethos of fail fast and early. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They should get an award at some upcoming VC (laughs) awards show. Yeah. Fastest time to failure. I like that. Fastest time to hard pivot. It's (laughs) It's not a failure. It's a pivot. It's only a failure when you stop. (laughs) Yes. Otherwise, it's just a pivot. Yeah. It's being reorganized under a new smart contract called Sweet Potato. (laughs) Oh, man. The key factor in all of this, and maybe I'm just becoming risk averse as I get old, but again, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. And just because people panic into things that then cause panic increases in price, again, doesn't mean that these are sustainable things. It's not investing. It's gambling. If you want to gamble, go ahead and gamble. If you're looking for something that is based around fundamentals, take the time to do your research and don't worry if you're not the first person into it, because if there's truly an opportunity there, there will be an opportunity there, even if it takes you several days of research in order to figure out that that opportunity is real. And as Andrea said, you know, again, just like the smart contracts, there's here's what we think this is going to do. And then there's here's what this actually does in practice. And sometimes it takes a little while of it being deployed before you see that. I mean, again, like this is like the Dow, but just in such a compressed time frame. I mean, like the Dow was $100 million, right? It was more than that, 120 or something like that. Yeah. I thought it was 180 million. Something like that. Okay. There are old smart contracts and there are bold smart contracts, but there are no old and bold smart contracts. I think we've ragged on this enough. Again, if you're negatively affected by this, sincere apologies to you. For everybody else, you know, if you can't be a shining example, at least be a horrible warning. But it's not a horrible warning. And the reason it's not a horrible warning is because uh, waves and waves of waves of new investors are now coming into crypto and they will repeat all of the same mistakes. And there will be plenty of scammers waiting for them with open arms to make them repeat the same mistakes. And this is not an Ethereum thing. Quite honestly, I'm kind of glad that you can't make easy, smart contracts and tokens on Bitcoin because Ethereum took that glory, because that does attract a lot of scammers who otherwise would be making this on the Omni layer or counterparty or something like that, like they were in 2014. Just to clarify, I don't think anyone here is calling the people at Yam scammers. Not at all. I think this is just a mess up, just to very strongly delineate, because there was no pre-mine, This looks just like a doing very hard things with very hard products and falling flat on one's face. Yeah, you could even say they're helping to test the smart contracts. Yeah. I'm just making sure because these are people after all, and it does look like their heart was in the right place. It just a hard thing broke. Yeah, absolutely. Not a doubt. It's more about the motivation of all of the newbie investors coming in. And to Adam's point, this is not a crypto problem. The broader market flooded with enormous amounts of money through various forms of stimulus that have cheapened money, is looking for yield that doesn't exist. And when you're looking for yield that doesn't exist, that encourages riskier and riskier and riskier investments. The problem wasn't YAM. The problem was the 
thousands and thousands of people who plowed 60 to 80 million dollars into something so barely tested. That's the problem. And the thing is, it's going to happen again and again, and we're about to see a new wave of this happening. And there's really nothing we can do to stop it. I don't know if it's good or bad, but the thing that I think about is very similar to kind of what I was commenting on from the earlier ICO boom, which is that it was always a bad idea for the vast majority of projects that seemed successful at first. And the feedback that you got as someone who was participating in that was that you were doing the right thing because the thing that you were doing was making the money that you were investing more valuable than it was had you not invested. And so people who took kind of a conservative view looked really dumb for a long time. And I was kind of in the middle, right? Like I kind of played both sides of that. I'm conservative for sure. But I also, again, I like to expose myself to risk. And again, it's just like the lessons that are taught by the successes here, the even if just temporary successes, I think those are the hardest ones to walk away from. And so at the very least, these fast failures and fast dramatic failures I think drive home the lesson that caution is actually important and thinking through not just the, you know, what are other people doing right now and what I want to miss out on or don't want to miss out on, but just again, like, what's the plan in the medium term, right? Like, what happens if something goes wrong? And things like this might be really hard to predict, but, you know, like what we were talking about, the amount of interest you can earn by lending your money to, you know, something like MakerDAO, you know, or one of these other programmatic, you know, smart contract based stable coins that pays interest. And on the one hand, that's great. But on the other hand, the price that you're paying for the return that you're getting is exposure to these unknown risks. And so it's not a risk and it's like a better return. It's you're making a different trade off where you're getting more return back in exchange for bearing the brunt of if things go wrong. I also think that there's a lesson here for the layman also that it's the opposite of what feels right, which is what you said earlier, which is people were attracted to Yam because there was no pre-mine. So it felt fair and they felt like this is something I want to get involved in. And I've always been sort of understanding and yet constantly banging my head on the wall as to this concept of any form of financial incentive for those who are actively maintaining or building or creating is in somehow maligned or evil compared to the alternative. When Ethereum was getting started and we were talking about, look, there's going to be 12% for this thing called a foundation. That's a scam. That's a fraud. It's like, no, no, it's not a scam. How do you venture model building all of the sunk cost it takes to make something, to then do it and then build it? And so you look at this DeFi project and the notion of, hey, let's do no pre-mine. Let's have no financial structure so that no one can malign my incentives. But correspondingly, there was no money for an audit. There was no money for engineers in real time. There was no money for all of these things that are what you need to have a fidelity in a project to know that it won't blow up in the first three days. And so I think there's this sort of chicken and egg problem in the market where people think that it feels right to say, look, there was no incentive that I've had or there was no money that I got front loaded in order to be able to deliver this. But then the corresponding risk is things like this, which is, there was no audit that could have caught this two days before it launched. And it was because the money wasn't there because he wanted to do the right thing, which was to not have any sort of financial interest in the creation of the thing. And so I think this project's interesting for a number of reasons. And one is this idea that any sort of alignment of values to build is wrong and should be 100% taken away. Listen, Jonathan, I have been accused in the past of not understanding money, investment, or finance at all. 
But even I, even I know that the only valid, ethically correct basis for acquiring money is close proximity to a silicon fabrication plant in Guangzhou. <laughs> that is the only pure way of creating a security infrastructure for a blockchain. If you take money, you have a problem, which is that you now have to spend it responsibly in order to manifest what it is you're supposed to be manifesting into real life. If you don't take money, you have a problem, which is that you don't have the resources to manifest what it is that you're trying to manifest into real life. And this is a lesson that I think was driven home for me by watching the early kind of eras of tokens in the MasterCoin approach, which did fundraise and then effectively waste the money. You know, not every single dollar, but it was a wildly inefficient process that wound up with them running out of money pretty darn quickly. But the craziest thing MasterCoin did was thought that the Bitcoin core developers would do anything at all to try to help them. <laughs> and then on the other side of it, there was the counterparty approach, which did a proof of burn and basically compelled people who wanted to be involved with the project and to have some of its tokens to actually destroy Bitcoin because it prevented this founder incentive problem that we're talking about here. And ultimately, both of them kind of failed. They failed in different ways. But they failed, and they failed in large part because of that problem with money one way or the other. And that's a wrap on another episode. Today's show featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show comes courtesy of Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats, straight from the street, with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, or tips, send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>